Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hallelujah. With some trust in horses and some in chariots, we trust in the Lord our God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, we've been, we have been taking a break for, uh, for many weeks from our series in First John due to the High Holy Days, uh, and, and now we're picking it back up again today. Uh, which is now part eight uh, in our ongoing series on, on the uh, epistle of First John. And we're going to look today at the theme of, of truth and lies uh, in the, from the end of chapter two, and a particular passage where John says, he who denies the son denies the father. So turn with me to First John 2, beginning in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and you've heard uh, that the false messiah is coming. Even now, many false messiahs have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But the going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? Whoever denies Yeshua is the Messiah. Such a person is the anti-Messiah, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This passage is about truth and lies. Now, since it's been several weeks since we looked at at 1 John, let me me remind you that uh, back in 1 John 2, John starts to address this question, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm a believer with true saving faith? Is it even possible to know? And John says, yes, it is possible to know, uh, to be sure. He says this in 1 John 2, verse 3, we know that we've come to know him. Now, a lot of people think it's arrogant to say that you know that you know the Lord God. Uh, Do you think that someone who says, I know that I know God, uh, that I'm going to heaven, I know I'm saved, I know I have his favor, do you think they're arrogant? That's a very common view. Many secular people say, I don't know if there's a God. But if there is, you surely couldn't be certain that you know him. Uh, because you, you always be striving. You always be wondering if you, if you, if you, ta- if you have attained. Uh, but if you just say well, well, that you know him, well, that must be tremendously arrogant. Uh, you must think you're really hot stuff. Uh, because no one can really be certain. Uh, so there's no way you could really know that you know God. Well, if that's your view, it shows you don't have an understanding of what it means to be a Yeshua follower at all. Because what it means to be a Yeshua follower is not based so much on what you do or say or even what you believe, as much as it's based on what God has done and what he says and what he believes about you. Yeshua faith, Messianic faith, is a standing. If you were to ask someone, of what country are you a citizen? And they say, well, I'm a U.S. citizen. Uh, and, and you say, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Would you say, well, how arrogant is that? <laughs> you must think you're really something that you can claim to know that you're a U.S. citizen. How can you know? And the response would be, well, you don't understand the nature of citizenship. Either you have the rights of citizenship or you don't. Uh, there's nothing in between. There's no process of slowly becoming a citizen. You may study and prepare, 
but that doesn't mean you're slowly turning into a citizen. No, either you are or you aren't. What makes you a citizen is if you have the rights as of one, whether the U.S. government has bestowed these rights upon you. And it's similar with Yeshua faith, with Christianity, with Messianic Judaism. Look at John 1, 12. To those who believed on him, to those who received him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There it is. To be a Messianic believer is to have received these rights. To know that God has said, you are my child. You've moved from death to life. Either you're in God's kingdom or you're not. There's nothing in the middle. So either you're justified by faith, you're made right with God through trusting in Yeshua as your Lord, and his righteousness is transferred to you, and you're accepted, or you're not. Either you're in or you're out. Uh, You're either a citizen or or not. Not only of the U.S., uh, but also of God's kingdom. So when someone says, I don't uh, don't know uh, and see how you can claim that you know the Lord, uh, they're simply showing they don't understand Messianic Yeshua faith at all. So it's perfectly biblical for a believer to say, yes, I know it's possible to know that you know God. Uh, But how do I know? Right? How do I know I've made that that, that, uh, transaction? How do I know I've entered his kingdom and, and eternal life? How do I know I have true saving faith in Yeshua? Well, in 1 John chapter 1, John discusses the witness within, uh, within you, the Holy Spirit, of having fellowship with God. Uh, there's this internal subjective test. Uh, and and uh, as we've discussed, uh, John says here in chapter 2 that there are also three objective, external tests. The first test is the character test. Look at 1 John 2 verse 3 on the overhead. Uh, We know we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth's not in him. But if anyone anyone obeys his word, the love of God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Yeshua did. So the first test, the way you know you're a true Yeshua follower, is your character changes. It's the character test. Uh, you, you become in your behavior and in your lifestyle like Yeshua. You obey his commands. You follow his example. Uh, on the overhead, the second test is the love test. Not only is your character changed, but you become a loving and compassionate person. Look at 1 John 2, verse 9. Anyone, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, uh, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. Now, let me give a pastoral word here. You would be amazed how many people right here in our own congregation fail this test, the love test. They don't walk in love. Uh, They hold on to grudges uh, and bitterness and resentment and animosity. And they walk in unforgiveness. If this is you, you are playing with fire. Repent. And then in verses 12 to 14, it says that a true follower of Yeshua is someone who's growing in the Lord. A Messianic believer who's someone who's growing in character, uh, who's growing in love. So you see, for example, it's possible for, for, for someone who's just temperamentally sweet-natured to mistake that temperamental sweetness for the love of God. 
uh, that, only, but that only grows out of a true regenerated, reborn heart on the overhead. Uh, and that's why John is saying the way you know that this love is, is born of God and not just so that, you, that you're temperamentally nice is that you're changing. Uh, you're growing. There's a noticeable progress being made. That, that, that you're more loving than you used to be. And you can see and sense it. Other people can see it and sense it in you. Uh, and so now we come to this third today, this third and final test. Uh, the third test, uh, this third objective test is, is the truth test, the, the, the uh, test of true saving faith. It's the issue of truth versus the lie uh, and the core doctrine of Yeshua being the Jewish Messiah and the Son of God. And biblically, when you, by the way, when you say the phrase Son of God, you're saying Yeshua is divine, that he is deity, that he is God come in the flesh. And we see all this throughout, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures uh, as well as the New Covenant Scriptures. So, for example, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or in Hebrew, the Father of Eternity, a Prince of Peace. This is the Messiah, the Son. Even as the rabbis agree, the rabbis agree, this is a messianic passage. But yet notice he's called El Gibor. He's called Mighty God. The Messiah here in Isaiah, written 700 years before Yeshua, Messiah is called God. And then in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, we see two thrones, plural. Uh, They're set up in heaven, one for the Ancient of Days, God the Father, one for the Son of Man, this divine messianic figure who is depicted here as equal with God. So he and the Ancient of Days are each sitting on a heavenly throne. And And even the Talmud itself, quoting none other than Rabbi Akiva, says this, about Daniel 7, in the two thrones, says this is King Messiah, who is yud heh Amazing. And then in Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, King David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, to, to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The rabbis acknowledge this is a messianic psalm. Messiah is seen here as sitting at God's right hand, which is a depiction of equality. But then in verse 5, it says, the Lord, yud heh is at your right hand. Now, we know from verse 1 that Messiah is sitting at God's right hand. But verse 5 says, the person sitting at God's right hand is yud heh the Lord Almighty. Now, your Bibles may not say this, but if you look at the biblical Hebraica, which is the original Messianic, I'm sorry, the original Masoretic, the original Masoretic Hebrew text with all the footnotes, it says that the original text here reads yud heh and that the Masoretic scribes later changed it to Adonai, uh, to Lord, to, quote, avoid confusion. So the original Hebrew uh, of Psalm 110 said David's Lord is at God's right hand, and this Lord is yud heh himself, i.e. that Messiah is equal, uh, equally God with the Father. And then, of course, the New Testament is replete with, with references. Look at John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. So this divine Word, which was God himself, became flesh in the incarnation in the person of Yeshua. Now, I've gone some length about this. Why? Because this is the core irreducible truth that John says you must affirm. Second, the people, they, they bristle at this notion of objective truth. But John is quite clear here. First John says this. Look at First John 2, 19. They went out from us because they really didn't belong to us. 
For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Who's he talking about? Look at 1 John 2, uh, 22. Who is the liar? It's he who denies Yeshua is the Messiah. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. If you deny that Yeshua is the Messiah or deny that he's the Son of God, which as we've seen is a, is a divine designation, a divine title, if you do that, you're denying the Father. Indeed, John eight twenty four, and it says this. Yeshua says, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, your translation may say, if you don't believe that I am he, but the actual Greek doesn't say that. The actual original Greek says, I am. Well, who revealed himself in the burning bush as I am? The Lord God Almighty. This is who Yeshua is claiming to be. He says, if you don't acknowledge me as I am, the word he is not in the Greek, as I am, you are still in your sins. Now, back in 1 John chapter 2, one group that went out from, from the original first century believers, uh, and we're not of them, were a group called the Gnostics. They claimed to be believers, but they confessed, uh, they confessed the name of Yeshua, but they were false. They were counterfeit. Uh, they were not true believers. Uh, they deny this doctrinal core that John describes here in verses 22 and 23. True believers believe in and confess and rejoice in this doctrinal core. This is the third test uh, of true saving faith. Yeshua faith, by the way, is neither solely a right brain or a left brain a religion. Uh, it's both. You know, most philosophies and most religions tend to be either one or the other. Uh, some religions, for example, are, are very mystical. Uh, but then there's no real doctrine there. Uh, Eastern religions like Hinduism and, and, and Buddhism uh, tend to be like this. Doctrine is not, is not the important thing. Experience is the important thing. But the Bible talks a lot about experience, about a real experience of God. Uh, John says, we know that we know him. We have this internal witness. A true Yeshua follower is someone with a real experience of God. Someone who doesn't just know about God, but someone who actually experiences him, his presence. His glory has been poured out upon you. Uh, so there's a real experience through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John says, you're not a believer if all you have is head knowledge, but you don't know God. You're not a Yeshua follower if you've never sensed his love on your heart, if you've never sensed his presence in your spirit. John says, I don't care how well you know the Bible, uh, how much theology you know, how orthodox and correct is your statement of faith. If you're not a loving person, if you haven't experienced the love of God on your heart, you're not a believer. So John's been dealing with this, this one side, the right brain side. But now he turns around and he focuses on the left brain. John now says that while Yeshua faith is indeed mystical, it's much more than that. Uh, there is an irreducible doctrinal core. Uh, there are some basic truths that you have to believe to be a born-again Yeshua follower on the overhead. Now, there are two views of truth today. There's a biblical view that says truth is objective. Uh, it exists apart from us, uh, and, it, and it constructs and it shapes us when we come in contact with it. A truth exists apart from us whether we believe it or not, and we must bow to it. You can either acknowledge the truth now. You can say there is a truth out there that I must bow to. There is a moral order. There is an objective reality, both a physical and a spiritual reality. And if I ignore this moral order, and I do my own thing, 
I will pay the consequences. There is a moral order, and you can bow to it now, or you can bow to it later. You can either bow to it now willingly, or bow to it later unwillingly. The Bible says the last days, look at the Revelation 6, 11, 6, 16, the, the Bible says that many will say to the rocks, many, many will cry out to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So you can either bow to the Lord now willingly or you will bow to him later unwillingly. And the overhead, there's a moral order to the universe. That's the biblical view. In contrast, the modern secular view is that we exist apart from truth. We construct and shape the truth. Whereas the biblical view is that the truth constructs and shapes us. So John says in 1 John 2, 22, who's the liar? It's whoever denies that Yeshua is the Messiah. Such a person is the anti-Messiah, denying the Father and the Son. Notice that John doesn't say, well, I believe Yeshua is the Messiah and you don't. That's very interesting. You, you have a right to your opinion. I respect your opinion. No, he doesn't say that. Uh, he doesn't give this, this modern, tolerant, neutral, mealy-mouthed response. What does he say? He says, you're a liar. <laughs> now, in the proper context, yes, the Bible does say we're to be meek and to be gentle. When cursed, we're not supposed to curse back. You know, we're supposed to bless. Uh, there, are, there are many verses about, about being loving and merciful and kind and compassionate. So how does all that now square with what John is saying here? When he, John calls those who deny Yeshua as the Messiah, he calls them a liar. Here's how the Bible squares them. When it comes to you, when it comes to someone disagreeing with you, when it comes to saying uh, your policies or your ideas or your priorities are wrong or your opinions are wrong, you're supposed to respond with kindness and gentleness, not let your ego get in the way. You're not supposed to respond with anger or lack of self-control or indignation. So say, for example, um, if you say, well, I think we need to add a lot more drums uh, and volume and smoke machines and strobe lights to the worship. And someone else says, no, I totally disagree. You, you, you then say, you're a liar. You're opposing the Lord. You're the Antichrist. <laughs> no, <laughs> of course not. These are matters of personal preference, of personal opinion. When it comes to you, you need to be humble. Uh, I, maybe, I suppose I could be wrong here. You know, we, maybe we don't need all this extra stuff in the worship. <laughs> but what John is saying here is that when it comes to the central, irreducible, essential, core doctrines of the faith, that Yeshua is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, i.e. God in the flesh. That which all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, have always believed for 2,000 years. That's attested to throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as well as the New Covenant Scriptures. And this, he says, there's no compromise. And when someone denies one of these core truths, John says it's not just a matter of your opinion, but that this person is in the grip of a lie. Uh, that this person is lying. So the Bible says meekness when it comes to you, but absolute uncompromising assertiveness when it comes to the core truths of the gospel. There can be no compromise here. So 1 John 2.22, whoever denies Yeshua is the Messiah is the anti-Messiah, not the Antichrist. As I mentioned earlier, in addition to uh, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, denying that Yeshua was the Messiah, Another problem believers faced in the first two centuries was this problem of Gnosticism. 
uh, the Gnostics believed in, in secret knowledge, which was later picked up by the Hasidic Jews and, and, and Kabbalism. Uh, and, and, and picking up from Greek philosophy, these Gnostics also believed uh, in a dualism, uh, where matter was bad uh, and spirit was good. Uh, and some streams of Gnostics, picking up from Eastern religion, said matter, the physical, is just an illusion. It's not real. And they were based on these two beliefs, one, that the physical is bad, and two, that it's only an, an illusion. They say God could not have become a flesh and blood human being. It just couldn't be in this Gnostic view. And as I mentioned earlier, Jews in the first century were actually split on this issue. Many first century Jews saw explicit references in the Hebrew scriptures to the deity of Messiah, especially in the person of the angel of the Lord. And they saw examples of the Lord taking on human form, such as with the captain of the Lord of hosts, with Joshua. Uh, and you have appearing as a man and speaking face-to-face with Abraham in the tents of Mamre and eating with him and discussing with him the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, 19, 20. And they see God speaking in the plural, Genesis 1. Look at Genesis 1, 26. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Well, who's, the, who's us? <laughs> this is God the Father and God the Son. You know, we're not made in the image of angels. <laughs> so many Jews in the first century saw in the scriptures that the Godhead was plural, one Lord manifesting himself in, in two or more persons. And they actually came up with a name for this. They called it the two powers uh, theology. Now, with the rise of the Yeshua movement, after Yeshua's death and resurrection, the Jewish leaders who rejected Yeshua began to move away from this two powers theology. Why? Because it was too close to Messianic Judaism. Uh, and many leading Israeli scholars today, including Professor Israel Yuval, uh, Hebrew University, and Professor Daniel Boyarin, uh, are now seeing that rabbinic Judaism actually developed as a reaction against Messianic Judaism. That Messianic Judaism came first as an outgrowth of classic biblical Judaism, and then modern rabbinic Judaism developed later as a reaction against it. So rabbinic Judaism came to reject the previously accepted notion that God could become incarnate as a human being, as if anything's too great for God. Uh, and the Gnostics, influenced by Greek philosophy and by Eastern religion, they also said God would never stoop so low as to take on flesh and blood. And so therefore the Gnostics said, Yeshua, he, he might be a great guy, but he couldn't be the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And John makes it clear what he's talking about when he later says this in 1 John 4, verse 2. Every spirit that acknowledges that Yeshua the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Yeshua is not from God. Now, John writes this epistle to refute, among other things, to refute the Gnostics. He says, if you believe this Gnostic heresy, if you deny Yeshua is the Son of God, you're of the Antichrist. Uh, you're a liar. And you have neither the Son nor the Father. First John two twenty three. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. <clears throat> why? Here's why. The doctrine of the incarnation, of Yeshua leaving his heavenly throne and becoming a man, it says this. It says, you and I are so sinful that nothing less than the incarnation could ever save us. The gospel is, no matter how hard you try to be moral and righteous, you are so sinful you can never reach God. And therefore, God had to come down to you. And therefore, anyone who denies that Yeshua is God come in the flesh, 
is denying the very core of the gospel. It's another whole different gospel, as Paul says in Galatians 1. When he's warns against those preaching another gospel and even calls them accursed. Well, you may have never heard of the Gnostics, but the main issues are the same today. So, for example, in, in liberal mainline Protestant uh, churches today, uh, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, they say, we can't believe today in the miracles of the Bible, uh, in the virgin birth. Uh, you show he was a great man, but we can't believe he's the incarnate son of God, that he existed eternally before he was born. We can't believe in all that miraculous stuff. But John says, if this is your position, you're not a Yeshua follower. You're not a Messianic believer. You've invented another religion. Because what you're essentially saying is that being a good person is enough. You're saying, I can reach heaven on my own. God doesn't have to come down to me. I don't have to be born again to to enter the kingdom of God. Anyone who leads a good life can enter. You can believe that, but it's the opposite of what the Bible says. It's the opposite of the gospel. Now, some people say, well, I hate Messianic Judaism, Christianity, and all this because it's so exclusive. John says you must go to the, through the Son to have the Father, that Yeshua alone is the Messiah, and that he's the only way to, to God the Father. Oh, that's so exclusive. Yes, it is exclusive, but at least we're honest about it. Uh, if you're opposed to this exclusivity of the gospel, your alternative is just as exclusive. You just won't admit it. Your position is that all good people can come to God without Yeshua. But that's very exclusive, too. What do you mean, David? Well, for example, that view leaves me out. Because I know I'm not good. I know I don't live up to God's standards of holiness and righteousness. I don't keep the law perfectly. I don't love God with all my heart. I don't love my neighbor as myself. Your view that rejects Yeshua is the only way, and says all good people can enter God's kingdom, your view is every bit as exclusive as mine. It, it certainly leaves me out. Both views are exclusive. So it boils down to which one is true. And the Bible is very clear. Acts 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is in Yeshua alone. Now, people today embracing what they call postmodernism say, I don't believe in objective truth. Which, uh, what right do believers have to judge other value systems? Now, what are they doing when secular skeptics say this? They're doing the very thing they're criticizing you for. They're judging a value system. They're judging the biblical value system that says the only, there's only one way to God. They say, you can't judge other people's value systems. But when they say that, ironically, that's exactly what they themselves are doing. They're coming against the biblical value system of Yeshua faith alone. Yeshua says, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As a believer, you actually, you actually have a basis for judging other value systems. For there is a truth, uh, and there's no lie in the truth. So there's truth and there's falsehood. In contrast, the modern relativistic view says there's no such thing as truth. Uh, therefore, you can't judge. But that's just as exclusive, don't you see? It's trying to condemn and censor and cancel those who believe in objective truth. We know there's such a thing as exclusive truth. 
because you can't even deny the exclusivity of truth without using exclusive truth claims to state your position. The relativistic viewpoint, it's circular and it's self-defeating. It tries to state as an an objective truth that there's no such thing as objective truth. (laughs) But I'll take my biblical exclusivity because if Yeshua is the Messiah and the way to the Father, then no matter what your record is, you can come to God. The biblical understanding of truth is so different uh, uh, than mere moralism, which says all good people can come to God. Moralism says it's not all that important what you believe. Uh, All that's important is is that you live a nice life. Moralism, therefore, has no answer for people who are failures, for people who are sinners, who aren't good. If I'm a failure and you say to me, moral effort, that's how you get to God, what can the moralist say to me? Nothing. He has no answer. Because the moralist says, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But when you come to a Yeshua follower who knows he's saved only by grace, uh, and you're a moral failure, he can respond to you in hope through the gospel in a way the moralistic view never could. Because a Yeshua follower knows that your past moral failures are no barrier to you embracing the gospel, uh, being reborn from above being filled with God's Spirit uh, and transformed from within by the power of Yeshua working in your life. Indeed, this is brought home by looking at the very genealogy of Yeshua himself. Look who's in Yeshua's genealogy. Incest victim, Tamar, prostitute, Rahab, pagan Moabitess, Ruth, adulterer, adulteress, Bathsheba. Now, in Jewish thought, your genealogy was the people you're bragging on. Uh, You're saying, look at all my illustrious ancestors. But Yeshua turns this moralistic mindset completely upside down. Moral people are beautiful. But it's often the beauty of a snowflake. Beautiful, symmetrical, intricate, freezing. How many of you have ever read anything by Flannery O'Connor? This famous 20th century Southern Christian writer, uh, she writes these short stories that often depict uh, uh, decent people with traditional values, uh, family values, morality, but they're clueless about other people who are suffering. And they can't understand people who, who, who are breaking down. Uh, they're superior and they're judgmental and they're holier than thou. And they can't understand brokenness and, and the messiness of life as it really is. We need a moral compass. We need, yes, we need traditional family moral values, biblical values. But we can't just become these prim and proper moralists uh, and Pharisees who look down their nose at everybody else and say, thank you, God, you didn't make me a sinner like all those other people out there. (laughs) The seemingly seemingly good people, the outwardly good people, people in in Flannery O'Connor's short stories, they're, they're moralists. They have no concept of grace. They see themselves as good and others as bad. In contrast, a Yeshua follower says this. says, I'm getting better, yes. I'm I'm beginning to exercise more self-control. I'm loving others, but it's all a miracle. It's all God's grace. And when they see someone not living up to biblical standards, they say to them, hey, you can be changed too, just like I was. The moralist says, yes, of course, I'm pretty together. And all my friends that I hang out with, we're together too. We're all together. But a Yeshua follower looks in the mirror It says, my transformation is a miracle. Yes, I'm making progress. I can see God moving in my life. 
but it's not due to my greatness. No, it's all God. It's all a miracle. Moralism is freezing. It's freezing like a snowflake. And it's exclusive in a very different way of exclusivity. The gospel says anyone can come to God through Yeshua. Just look at his followers. People on the outs. People who are marginalized. Not in the inner circle. Not respectable. What is this saying? Yeshua says in John 1 verse 12, those who receive me, on the overhead, John 1 verse 12, who receive me, who believe on my name, I give the right to become children of God. Yeshua welcomes sinners into his family. All who repent and submit their lives to him. Regardless of your record, regardless of who you are or what you've done. Thank you. Because Yeshua says, when you trust in me, everything everything I've done, my record comes to you. So the gospel is the, is the, the one truth that's for every kind of person. It's for everyone. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of who you were when you were called. Not many of you, by human standards, uh, were, were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly of this world and the despised things, the things that were not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast in his presence. So what is truth? Ultimately, truth is a person. It is Yeshua. Yeshua says again, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And because truth uh, is ultimately a person, Truth is alive. The truth is that Yeshua is God come down into the flesh who's come to earth to rescue you from beyond hope. John says, if you deny this, then at some deep level, you're lying to yourself. At some level, maybe an unconscious level, deep down, you know the gospel is true. And no one probably articulated this better than J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. In his book entitled On Fairy Stories, uh, Tolkien says the gospel is what, is what he calls a eucatastrophe, beyond all the good, behind all the good stories. So uh, he coined this phrase, this, this word, a new word. The prefix EU means good, and the c- c- catastrophe, of course, means bad. So a eucatastrophe is a story in which good comes out of evil. Life comes out of death. Triumph comes out of defeat. And Tolkien says, beneath all the stories that we love, all these stories are an echo of the great new catastrophe, the gospel. And this is a story we all know deep down is true. Here's an illustration. Most kids hate medicine. They don't want to take medicine. So what the smart marketers and people who uh, manufacture medicine have done is they've created antibiotics that taste like candy. So you give your kid a piece of candy. And in their consciousness, the child tastes the medicine. It it seems like it's candy. But the body is not fooled. Consciously, it's candy. But the body knows it's medicine. And the body responds to it as medicine. And the body draws the truth out. And the overhead, this is what Tolkien is saying. 
whenever any great story comes along that's a shadow of the gospel, even though consciously in your human skepticism, you may have written off the whole idea of God or the supernatural or heaven or hell or miracles. Nonetheless, these stories about these things, your mind thinks it's candy, but your soul knows it's the truth. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, you may know, uh, was actually the one who won C.S. Lewis to the Lord. Uh, they were walking one day on, on, uh, on Addison's Walk at Oxford University. Tolkien was a believer. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And, and Lewis said, you know, when I read the old myths and the old stories, it's almost, it almost makes you feel like there really is a truth. There really is a right and a wrong. There really is a heaven and a hell. But myths are just lies that breathe through silver. And Tolkien said, no, they are not. And he explained the gospel to C.S. Lewis. And Lewis became a believer. And years later, Lewis wrote a chapter that explained this, this basic premise that Tolkien unveiled to him that day. And then the name of the chapter was Myth Becomes Fact. And in that chapter, Lewis explains how believers, how Yeshua followers, look at stories. And he says this, the old myths, though not factually true, were all about reality. Uh, he says the old myths, although not factually true, were telling you truths. So, for example, uh, there's, there's, there's no such thing as, as a, her, a real Hercules or, or, or Oedipus or Helen of Troy. But these classic myths tell you something about underlying reality. They tell you there is a love that overcomes death. Uh, and the character is more important than money. So, so you respond to these stories on the overhead. Uh, and then he says, the heart of Christianity, of messianic faith, is the teaching that myth become, became an historical fact. The reality to which all the myths point came down from the heaven of legend and imagination into the earth of history. It happened at a particular date at a particular place. Okay, what's he saying? Uh, you see, beauty and the beast. Beauty kisses the beast. Suddenly, his ugliness falls away. Uh, he's transformed. Is that historically true? No. But it points to an awesome reality. We don't believe in these fairy tales and myths. And if you go to uh, a fancy secular college, you're, you're taught deconstruction, that there's no such thing as a meta-narrative. Uh, there's no such thing as truth. Everything's relative. Just live your life the way you want to live it on the overhead. But then you go and see a beauty and the beast. And something gets you. What's going on? Your mind says it's candy. But your soul knows that it's true. It's telling you that there is a love that can cut through all the prisons and all the dungeons that sin has created. Peter Pan, what's that about? It's about never growing old. It's about flying. It's about a golden age. Well, we don't believe in that. Modern man does not believe in eternity. We don't believe there ever was a golden age. We don't believe in flying. We don't believe there ever would be a time like that or ever there ever was a time like that. A time when everyone was perfect and no one got old. Your mind tells you this. Your mind says it's candy. But your soul knows it's true. Eden will come again. It will be restored. Sleeping Beauty. The story tells you death is not the end. That a prince will come and kiss you and defeat death, and waken you to eternal life. The Lion King. When the true king is in charge, everything is harmony. When the true king is not in charge, everything goes to hell. 
what are these, all these stories saying? They're myths. They're not historically true. But they point to underlying awesome realities. Eternity. Moral order. Absolutes. Heaven. Hell. God. The supernatural. Love triumphing over evil. Relationships restored. The true king taking up his throne. You living forever. Why do these stories stir us? Even though you you know they're only stories. You don't believe it intellectually, but your soul knows that the underlying themes are true. On the overhead. The truth is we are bewitched under sin. There is an evil sorcerer. There is a supernatural. There is a prince who can come and kiss us and wake us from the dead. There is a beauty who can love us and break us out of the the prison house of sin. And when Yeshua followers read these stories, they know the one thing you have in the gospel is not just one more story pointing to the awesome realities, but the claim of the gospel is that when Yeshua was born in the manger, that's not just one more story pointing to an awesome reality. No, not at all. But rather, Yeshua is the awesome reality to which all of these stories point. This is the truth. This is the truth we all know deep down, and we respond to it. So when you deny this core doctrine that the myth has become fact, that Yeshua, the second person of the eternal Godhead, actually came to earth and became a person, he happened. If you deny this, you're denying what deep down you know to be true. You're lying to yourself. So when you hear your kids say, I wish that there was a Superman. I wish we could fly. I wish we never would grow old. I wish there were knights that slew dragons. On one level, you can say to them, there is. All these things are real. We are going to have new bodies with no limits. Maybe we even fly. We'll never grow old in the new Jerusalem. The new Eden with the tree of life will be restored. You know, Maggie Smith in the movie Hook, she plays an older Wendy. And she's talking to Peter Pan, played by Robin Williams, but he's got amnesia. You know, he can't remember. So she says, Peter, the stories are true. They're true. When you hear that as a messianic believer, you should get a chill. And if you don't believe that Yeshua is a son of God, come to earth to rescue you, to give you eternal life, to have, and to have you rule and reign with him forever and ever, then you're Peter Pan with amnesia like him. You're skeptical. But what does the gospel say? All these stories are true. If you deny it, you're lying to yourself. You know the truth deep down. Embrace Yeshua as the Son of God, as God come in the flesh, come to earth to save you and rescue you uh, and deliver you. If you know and embrace this truth, it will set you free. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let the music team to please come up. Father, Father, we thank you for your word today on this irreducible core central truth of the gospel. That Yeshua is the Messiah. That he's the divine Son of God. God come in the flesh, incarnated into our world. Uh, why? To seek and save and rescue and deliver us from sin and death and hell and judgment. Thank you, Father, for assuring us he who has the Son has the Father. Hallelujah.
But you tell us the reverse is also true, very soberly, that he who denies the Son denies the Father. Because we'd be denying everything you said in your word about the Son and denying that the Son is the perfect image and representation of the Father. Yeshua says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we'd be denying the Son is the only way to the Father. So he who has the Son has the Father. And he who denies the Son denies the Father as well. Lord, thank you today for driving home this point that the incarnation, that you, Yeshua, left your heavenly throne and became a man. It's telling us that we were so sinful that nothing less than your incarnation, you, Lord, coming in the flesh, could ever save us. We could never come to you, Lord. So in your love, you came to us. And no matter what our record is, we thank you that through you, Yeshua, we can come to you. This is the gospel. Thank you, Lord. No matter how hard we try to deny it, we know.